We're going to actually take a, a week break from Romans and look at Amos chapter 9. And if you look at verses 11 through 15. If I can find it, I don't know why. I've lost it now. Chapter 9. Here we go. Okay, Amos chapter 9, 11 through 15 says, In that day I will raise up the fallen booth of David, and wall up its breaches, and I will raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom, and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman would overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows seed, when the mountains will drip sweet wine and all the hills will be dissolved. Also I will restore the captivity of my people Israel, and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. I will also plant them on their land, and they will not be rooted out from their land, for I have given them, says Lord your God. Lord, as we come into your word, I just pray that we would see that you are the promise keeper, that Lord, you keep your word, that you can be trusted, that we can rely on you to do as you promise in your word. Lord, I need your help this morning because you've given me a responsibility to bring your very words to your church here. Just pray, Lord, that your spirit would move, that you, Lord, would work in my weakness, that your people would hear your voice, and that, Lord, we would leave encouraged and convicted and drawing closer to you. Lord, increase our faith this morning, we pray. Increase our understanding of your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. So we all know promise keepers, or promise breakers, sorry. Uh, all you have to do is hire someone through Facebook Marketplace or uh, get a recommendation, and most times those people don't keep their promises. And we ourselves have broken promises. Right? There's no one here that can say they haven't. And though we strive to keep our word, we break promises to our children, our husbands, our wives, our parents, our grandparents, to friends, co-workers, and to complete strangers. However, when we think of people famous for breaking promises, what comes to mind? Politicians, right? They make all kinds of promises. The world is going to become the new utopia after they are elected to office. And though, when we think of the most famous, it's presidents, right? And it's, what's interesting is, though they are some of the most powerful people on the planet, they can't even keep their promises. Because that's the problem. If... 
If we had all power, we could keep our promises, but we don't. We don't have all knowledge. We are not God. And so, for example, I'm going to read a list of presidents, what they said they would do, and what happened. Woodrow Wilson won re-election in 1916 with, which, with this slogan, He kept us out of the war. Guess what? <laughs> he didn't keep them out of the war in his second term. Lyndon Baines Johnson promised in 1964, we are not about to send American boys nine or 10,000 miles away from home to do what Asian boys ought to have been doing for themselves. Did he keep his promise? No. Anyone that knows the Vietnam War, he didn't keep his promise. Richard Nixon in 1968 claimed to have a secret plan to end the war. And not only that, he promised to find a way of peace that would give, be honorable for the United States. Well, American troops were not withdrawn until one year before he resigned as president. And the U.S. did not leave Vietnam with honor. Jimmy Carter, he campaigned on solving energy crisis. I didn't live in this time, but those who do know... But his speeches about con conservation and attempts to add solar panels to the roof of the White House weren't enough. He was unable to get support for a gas tax, and the energy problem only worsened during his presidency. Ronald Reagan promised to make a constitutional amendment allowing school prayer during his campaign, and though, although he proposed the amendment in 1982, he never, it never went every, anywhere. He didn't keep his promise. George H.W. Bush made this promise in 1988, read my lips, no new taxes. How do you think that one went over? <laughs> Everyone loved it, but it didn't work. Bill Clinton campaigned to renovate health care, and he called it Hillary Care. D did that happen? No, it didn't happen either. George W. Bush promised to change the tone in D.C. and privatize Social Security and reduce government spending. Did that work? Did that happen? No. And lastly, Barack Obama, according to, they now have these, um, these websites that check statistics. They, they, they break down statistically. So there's one called PolitiFact. It tracked 533 promises that Obama made on his campaign trail, and he and the found that 48 percent of them managed to be kept, while 24 percent of them he broke. I don't know what happened with the other percentage, because 24 and 48 don't equal 100. So I'm not sure uh, where the uh, where the other number was. But all these men by the world standards, are, are or could be considered the most powerful men on the planet. And yet, they could not keep their word. But God is not like these men. That's the difference between our God and the men who rule this world. The men who, who rule this world can't control the circumstances. They can't control because they're not omniscient. They're not all-powerful. They, they don't know everything. But our God does. So when God says, I will do something, He will do it. And He doesn't have to wait on Congress 
or the Supreme Court to back him up. He doesn't have to worry about a checks and balance because God is all-powerful and He's he's all-loving, all-good. Does that mean we should just say, well, well, it seems like sometimes it's not working. God is still in control. God has not lost control because things in our life aren't a bed of roses. We feel like actually it's a bed of thorns from the roses. But God has a purpose in all that He does. So if we think about this in light of Abraham, we're we're getting to Amos, but I think we have to see this. In in Genesis 22, 16 through 18, it says, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. And your seed, all the nations of the earth, shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. This was God's reply to Abraham taking Isaac and offering him on Mount Moriah. So, Abraham had kept God's call. He had gotten up early. They had traveled three days. And then he had told the people who were holding the animals, hey, we're going up to the mountain. When he got up there... His son said, okay, Dad, I'm doing math here. We've got, we've got wood. We've got source of fire. Where's the sheep? And what was Abraham's response? God will provide a lamb. And we know in Hebrews that Abraham so believed God's promise that through Isaac he would bless, that Isaac was his descendant, that he would raise him up, that if Abraham actually had to kill Isaac, God would raise him up. Abraham was proving the faith that God had given him. Because God made this promise to bless Abraham and all the nations through him before Abraham had ever done anything. And Abraham had to wait. Some say that, you know, when Abraham left, he was around 60 years old. So he had to wait 40 years to see the promise come to pass. And there are promises made to Abraham that his, peop- his children's children's children would be in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. And that they would be brought out and back into the land. Did God fulfill that promise? Yes. God kept, has kept every promise that He made to Abraham. God wasn't campaigning. He was saying, I'm Lord. I will do what I say I will do. God does not need to swear by something else. You know, oftentimes in a courtroom... You swear on the Bible that you're going to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. God doesn't need to do that. You know why? Because God is all-powerful. So if you see where we read in Genesis 22, God says, I myself have sworn on Himself. 
He didn't swear by the earth or, or anything. He said, I will do this. He swore by his own name. Or we think of Balaam. Remember Balaam? The king Balak came to Balaam and said, Hey, I'll give you whatever you want if you'll curse Israel. But Balaam knew that God would not allow it. He knew God well enough, unfortunately not well enough to be saved, because if you see the story of Balaam later on, we see that he was actually slain by the Israelites, and he was the, 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 the uh, instigator of the sin of Peor, if you remember that story, where the Israelite men were going into the Midianites and bringing women back to their tents, and the way God actually killed 24,000 Israelites because of this. And the only way it stopped is Phinehas, the son of Aaron, went in and killed this man, a man and woman who were doing it just blatantly in front of everyone. Like, and he killed them both. And it said because of his zeal for the Lord, the Lord stopped that. Well, Balaam... He understood this well. And so he said in Numbers 23, verse 19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said it, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? I heard a sermon on on Balaam not too long ago, and I thought it was interesting. Balaam wanted the things that Balak promised but he could not curse them. When he would open his mouth to curse them, God would turn it to a blessing. No matter what Balak... Tra- that's, why, that's why Balaam kept traveling around. It wasn't just because Balak wanted that. He was hoping, well, maybe God won't... Maybe God will be okay over here. But Balaam... And that's why Balaam realized, oh, I can, I can give Balak some counsel. If you... God won't curse them because He loves them, but if if you can get them to fall into sin, if you can get them to disobey God, then that curse will come upon them. And that's what they did. So once we arrive here in Amos, so Amos is preaching to the northern tribes. Amos uh, wasn't very popular when he came preaching because he preached judgment. And the people of the northern tribes are wondering how God keeps His promises if He condemns them to destruction and captivity in the foreign lands. And we see that in, in verse chapter 5, verse 9. And I'll, I'll read that. It says, it, it is He who flashes forth with destruction upon the strong so that destruction com- comes upon the fortress. So the first part of Amos, God is telling who He's going to condemn. He starts with all of Israel's enemies, and it gets closer and closer. Then He condemns Judah. And Israel's like, oh yes, this is so great. All our enemies are going to be taken care of by God. God's on our side. And guess what? The last condemnation was for Israel. And so... When he gets to that, they're like, we're, we're doing great. Our economy is doing great. Our soldiers are, I mean, our military is great. 
we have opulence. Oh, our worship is just incredible. And, but God said, I detest what you're doing because you are oppressing your neighbors. They were putting people into slavery of their own people. They were not caring for the poor. Instead, they were trampling them underfoot. So much so that Amos has a famous phrase, you cows of Bashan, talking about the women of Israel, the northern tribes. He compared them to cows. That is not a compliment, not even today. Try that with your wife and see how far that gets you. (laughs) You probably deserve a slap. So the people of Israel were... Deceived by their prosperity, their seeming goodness. And God said, that's, that's trash. You are not worshiping me as I should be worshipped. But, if you read in, in the first part of Amos 9, I want you to see how bad it was. How much God was preparing to judge them. Verse 1, it says, Smite the capital so that the thresholds will shake and break them on the heads of them all. Then I will slay the rest of them with the sword. They will not have a fugitive who will flee or a refugee who will escape. Though they dig into Sheol, another word for hell, though they dig into Sheol, from there my hand will take them. And though they ascend to heaven, from there I will bring them down. Though they hide on the summit of Carmel, I will search them out and take them from there. And though they conceal themselves from my sight on the floor of the sea, from there I will command the serpent and it will bite them. And though they go into captivity before their enemies, from there I will command the sword that it slay them. I will set my eyes against them for evil and not for good. The Lord of hosts the one who touches the land so that it melts, and all those who dwell on it mourn. And all of it rises up like the Nile and subsides like the Nile of Egypt. The one who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and has founded his vaulted dome over the earth. He who calls for the water of the sea and pours him out on the face of the earth. His name is the Lord. If you read this, it's pretty hopeless, right? You've heard this prophecy You hear of how God is going to judge your people, you. Well, verse 11 is good news, right? What did it say? In that day I will raise up the fallen booth of David. God hasn't forgot His promises. The problem is the people of Israel have forgotten God's promises. They've forgotten what God said in Deuteronomy 29. And I I want us to look there really quick. If you'll turn there with me, because I I think it's important that we see this. Oftentimes in the church, we want to ignore God's warnings because they're also promises. We, We love the good, you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We love those verses. But when God warns us, oh, We don't put those to memory, but we should because what we see in Deuteronomy is 
that God has promised to bless them. But here in verse 29, He promises that if they do not follow Him, they will be cursed. And I've lost the verse. I thought I had the verse on here. Let me find it. Okay. So verse 9 he says, So keep the words of this covenant to do them that you may prosper in all that you do. You stand today, all of you, before the Lord your God, your chiefs, your tribes, your elders, your officers, even all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and the alien who is within your camps, from the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water, that you may enter into the covenant which the Lord your God has made in order that He may establish you today as His people and that He may be your God, just as He spoke to you and He swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, not with, this, with you alone am I making this covenant and this oath, but, with, but both with those who stand here with us today in the presence of the Lord our God and those who are not with us here today. For you know how we lived in the land of Egypt and how we came through the midst of the nations. Therefore... Which you passed. Moreover, you have seen their abominations, their idols of wood and stone and silver and gold, which they have had with them. So that there will be not be among you a man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord your God to go and serve the gods of these nations. That there will not be among you a root of bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood. It shall be when he hears the words of this curse that he will boast, saying, I have peace. See? See this here? I have peace, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart in order to destroy the watered land with the dry. This is exactly what the people of northern tribes of Israel were saying. We have peace, but they were living in their abominations, in their stubbornness. And the Lord shall never be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will burn against that man, And every curse which is written in this book will rest on him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. We don't like those words. But they they should be a warning, because this is why the people of Israel went into captivity. God was merciful. The people of Israel started disobeying God from the moment they crossed over the Red Sea. Not long after they saw God's glories, they were ready to complain. Take me back to Egypt. I want leeks and garlics. And... But God was gracious to them. And for hundreds of years, God gave mercy and grace. If you read the Old Testament, I have a hard time believing what many people today who want to reject the Old Testament say well, the God of the Old Testament is just brutal and he does, there's no love and no... I don't know how you deal with the people of Israel, see their sin and God's continued faithfulness to deliver them. Yes, people receive judgment. But generally speaking, when you read the book, the Old Testament, you see a story of God's continued 
unfaithfulness. He draw, the, the people run away. God sends chastisement. They call out to God. God comes back, draws them to Himself. It's a cycle. It's an endless cycle. And eventually God says, I've had enough. You're going into captivity. I'm going to destroy you. You are going into captivity. But the thing is, Amos doesn't end in verse 10. Amos ends in verse 15. God doesn't leave them without a promise of hope. So God, He's pronouncing His judgment through Amos. It's interesting, Amos was just a little shepherd. A foreign shepherd at that. He was from Judah. That's why they didn't like him. And he was an arborist. He, he worked with trees. But God hasn't forgot His promises. That's what He's telling Israel here at the very end. The good ones. God has remembered the bad ones. The curses. But He also hasn't forgotten His good ones. So today's message is our God, the promise keeper. So God has not forgotten His promises and He kept His promises to Israel and He kept them through His only Son, Jesus Christ. The long-awaited Son of David. And all who believe in Christ as their Lord and Savior will experience these promises in this life and the life to come. So I've broken up this passage into four sections. Promise of David's throne, verse 11. Promise of purpose. Promise of blessing. And promise of inheritance. Again, promise of David's throne. Promise of purpose. Promise of blessing. And promise of inheritance. So the promise of David's throne. We see this in verse 11. In that day I will raise up the fallen booth of David. And unlike the presidents who couldn't keep their promises, God is able to keep His promises. And we never have to worry about Him forgetting something. Just like God hadn't forgotten the promise He made to Abraham, He didn't forget the promise He made to David. That He would have a king who would reign forever. And that's in in 2 Samuel 7, verse 12 and 13. We can see that promise there. And when we combine this promise, these two promises, we think of Psalm 72. And I'm going to read it. You can look at it later if you'd like. The Psalm 72 says this, Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your afflicted with justice. Let the mountains bring peace to the people and the hills in righteousness. May he vindicate the afflicted of the people save the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. So, one role of this king is to care for the needy and the oppressed. And that's what God is doing here in Amos. He's saying, you are being sent to captivity because you're oppressing your own brothers and sisters. You're oppressing the needy. You are afflicting and you're not giving justice. There are so many implications of what they've done. But they all have led to God's affliction. 
And then later on in, in Psalm 72, it says, May his name endure forever. Whose? The king. May his name increase as long as the sun shines. The king. And let men bless themselves by him. Let all the nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone works wonders, and blessed be his glorious name forever. And may the whole earth be filled with his glory. This is talking about Jesus, right? I mean, I, I see this and I think the promise to Abraham, the promise to David, and the promise here in, in Amos chapter 9, verse 11, is speaking of Jesus Christ. God fulfilled the promise. And if you want to go all the way back, if you think about the promise to Eve, what was the promise again? That her offspring would crush the head of the serpent. So, Jesus is a, a promise that has been slowly and slowly more revealed in time. It's kind of subtle with Eve. You get to Abraham, oh, a little bit more information. Get to even Moses, more information. David, oh, it's really getting clear. Amos, it's really clear. When we get to Jesus, we see the completion of all these promises, thousands of years completed. I'm sure that Amos did not, before he prophesied verse 11, think, oh man, things are going to turn out good. But when he started prophesying 11, his heart, I'm sure, shined bright. The only king whose reign could never end is Jesus. We see that in, in the book of Hebrews. I think it's so interesting. And so how do we know this? How, how do we know that this is Jesus that he's talking about? I believe we see it because Matthew and Luke both include the genealogy of Christ, drawing him back to David. Both of them. And they clearly saw that this shaky little booth, you know, so the booth back in those days, they would they'd have the festival of booths. And all the people would come to Jerusalem or, or wherever the tip tabernacle was, and they would put up these makeshift tents. It, honestly, it kind of reminds me of um, those of you who have seen pictures from Guatemala, from the dumps areas. There's some houses that I think those could have been booths back in Jesus' day. They weren't, they weren't meant to last forever. They were just for that, that festival. And so what we see here is, what was once a glorious kingdom, a glorious home. We, we, we think about the description of David's home in Jerusalem, how beautiful, it, even the, 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 the home of Solomon, just beautiful homes, had become so tottering and weak that it was like a little booth. But the promise that we see here is that God will wall up its breaches. God will rebuild it as in the days of old. God is going to restore the kingdom to all the glory of old.
And if we look in Acts, I want us to look in Acts chapter 15 because this, this passage is actually quoted in Acts 15 by the Apostle James. And actually, he, he quotes verse 11 and 12, which we'll get to that. But I, I want to read Acts 15, 12 to 16. And all the people kept silent, and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. This is ministry of the Gentiles. After they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon, he's talking about Peter, has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. So James is agreeing with this. There's been controversy about how to include the Gentiles, what they should be required to do. Those kinds of things. That's what this this whole narrative is about. So James is saying, I agree with Peter that the Gentiles should be a part of it. And he says this in verse 15, with, these wor- with this, the words of the prophets agree. They agree that God ha- has concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. That's what he's saying he, he, they agree with. Just as it is written, after these things I will return. And I will rebuild the tabernacle of David. Same tabernacle is what he's, he's quoting Amos, which has fallen and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. So that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. Then he says, Therefore it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. What's he saying? Some are saying they need, they have to be circumcised. And he's saying no. But we write to them that they should abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. So that, that's how that, that story ends. We see there that James sees this picture in Christ, right? That's why he's quoting it right here. He's referring, he sees that Christ is the one who restores the glory, the the former glory of David's house, of his kingdom. So, the first promise, this promise of David's throne, comes, has already come. We've already seen it come. And... And one day we will see its completion in the new heavens and the new earth. We'll see Christ on the throne. And we see that in in the book of Revelation. So this first promise has not only happened, but we're going to see it in its complete fulfillment one day. So God is a promise keeper. The second, a promise of purpose. Return back to Amos with me. And that's verse 12. That they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. So 
So, what's their purpose? It's the same purpose that God has had for the people of Israel from the beginning. That they would bring, be a blessings to all the nations of the earth. We see in the genealogy of Christ, God actually bringing in Gentiles. Rahab the harlot. We see um, Ruth. All in the gene- genealogy of Christ. We see God working and bringing in time. I mean, you don't see a huge influx of Gentiles in the, in the people of Israel. But God has made provision for Gentiles to come in. And not only that, they're in the lineage of Jesus, our Lord. And this purpose of being a blessing to all the nations is what we're seeing James talk about in Acts chapter 15 when he, when he says, this is how the, the Gentiles will be joined. It's through the booth of, of David being raised up again. So the purpose of God to bring the people of Israel to the nations is in Christ Jesus. Their purpose as our purpose as a church as individuals, is to bring blessing to the nations. And I'm not talking about uh, food or physical things. I'm not saying we shouldn't. But how are people blessed in this kingdom? I talked about this a couple weeks ago. They're blessed when the Spirit of God moves and their hearts are turned to Christ. When they believe the gospel. So when we preach the gospel and we see, I say preach, proclaim, that's what the word means, herald, we, we make known the gospel of Christ to our friends and our neighbors, to people down the road, people in our state, people in our country, people in the world around us. When we are proclaiming the gospel, we're proclaiming the kingdom. We're proclaiming the purpose that God has made us for. And that's why Matthew 26, or 28, sorry, not 26. Matthew 28 is so important to us as believers. God is commissioning us to make disciples and to teach and to baptize. But it's not in our power, it's in the power of Christ, our Lord and our King. We are just heralds. Oftentimes in the past, they would send heralds before the King. The King is coming! Get ready. Get your your kingly clothes on. Get get your homes ready. The king is coming. They would send him before because it would be awful if the king showed up and no one was ready. That's what we're called to be. We're called to be heralds of the gospel that Christ has come and that His kingdom is coming. But Christ alone can prepare the way through us. He Desires to use, he doesn't have to use us, but he desires to use his people. God has used the church throughout the ages as a means of bringing hope to the nations. So we see this promise of purpose, and, and we're fulfilling it today. We're seeing, we're the fulfillment of it because we would all be Gentiles. None of us would be allowed to, to enter in 
after the old temple. But Christ has made a way for us. So God gives a promise of purpose that He will cause His people to possess the land. And not only possess it, but that that, that possession is a, a blessing to the nations, that all the nations will come to them, come to Christ. Third, we see a promise of blessing, and this is in verse 13 and 14. So though God is determined to bring His promise of judgment to pass, and He used Amos to proclaim this, He hadn't forgot the promise that He had made in Deuteronomy 30. So I want us to turn back. I know. Why why didn't we read it when we were there before? Because I thought it would be a little uh, preemptive. Deuteronomy 30, verse 1 says, So it shall be, when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you. You know, if we think of banishing, that's what a king does, right? You're not allowed to go outside. You, they're sending you to a place that no one wants to be. It's just not a good place to be. But, verse 2, And you return to the Lord your God and obey Him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you. From there He will bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. In verse 9, even further, Then the Lord your God will prosper you abundantly in all the work of your hand, and the offspring of your body, and the offspring of your cattle, and the produce of your ground. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good, just as He rejoiced over your fathers. So though God has promised destruction and captivity to the people in Amos, He's now promising a blessing. When that day comes... declares the Lord in verse 13, when the plowman will overtake the reaper. So what's he saying? He's saying that there's going to be so much harvest that you're not going to have time to reap it all before you need to plow the fields again. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never seen this happen. Uh, Today it would be like, your John Deere combines won't be able to finish combining the fields before your disc tractors are ready to set the fields. Can you imagine? That's how much blessing God is going to pour out over them. Or the treader of grapes will over, 
will pass, overtake the sower. So back in those days when you want to make grape juice, you didn't have a, a machine. Someone's feet, hopefully they cleaned them before they got on. I don't. <laughs> but they tread in grapes. Well, at some point they had to plant more seed. And what he's saying is the same thing. They're not going to be able to sow because they're busy treading grapes. There's going to be so much blessing. Then the mountains will swip, drip with sweet wine. Probably grape juice, I don't know. <laughs> uh, and all the hills will be dissolved. Verse 14, Also I will restore the captivity of my people Israel, and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. So God intends to bless the land with abundance. And we see that in verse 13 where I've already talked. But He also plans to give His people contentment. To give them a place to live. We see that in verse 14. That they will be able to rebuild the ruined cities. They will be able to plant vineyards and actually drink the fruit of those vineyards. And they will be able to plant gardens and eat their fruit. They, they won't be planting for someone else. Because when God sends them into captivity, who eats all the fruit of their labor? The captors. But now they're going to return and God is going to bless them such that they are physically blessed in land and they're content in Him. Just think about the circumcised heart that we read about in, in Deuteronomy 30. That, that's what God does. That's what God is looking for throughout the Old Testament. We see a people who have physical representation of circumcision, but God is looking to have a circumcised heart, a heart that is all His. And that's a work that only He can do. The, the outward circumcision was always a picture of what should have been going on in the heart of His people. Because there were plenty of people who had the outward sign that didn't make it. I mean, just look how many made it into the promised land. Two of the original generation made it in. Two people. And all of them were circumcised. But only two actually made it. And we, we often want to put ourselves in the, we're like the people of Israel. We deserve God's judgment, but God has restored us from captivity. We don't have to live in that anymore. People of Israel, they're going to be given their land and they're not going to be cultivating vineyards for their captors anymore. Cultivating gardens for their captors anymore. They're going to get to cultivate their own and enjoy their fruit. And we see this fulfillment when they, they're brought back out of captivity. They start growing again. We see it again 
in 19, was it 68? Is that right? The year that Israel... I mean, you look at Israel today in the, the production and productivity of the land of Israel today. We're seeing this fulfillment right now in Israel. But we also see it in our lives as believers. We see God's provision for us. We see God's abundance given to us. And we see God's contentment given to us. But imagine we hear about the marriage supper of the Lamb. I'm pretty sure that's going to be pretty abundant. No more more need to go sowing because the abundance will be overflowing. So far, God has kept every promise, right? Well, let's see the last one. A promise of inheritance. Verse 15. I will also plant them on their land, and they will not again be rooted out from their land, which I have given them, says the Lord your God. Land has always been a big deal to people. Because it's a place to live, a place to grow, food, to provide for your family. And if you look at most disputes when a, a, a parent dies, it's over that. I mean, sometimes it's over fine china, but um, that's not... The people care more about the land than they care about anything else because that is the inheritance. That is what matters. And when you look at the promise when Jacob steals... Um, Esau's blessing and also buys his birthright, Jacob is getting the promise of God, the promise of the land to him. It's no longer for Esau and his people. They're actually the people of Edom that we just read about. Outside of the land of promise. That's where they are. Because when Jacob got the birthright, he got the inheritance. And that inheritance was the blessing of God in the form of land. So God here in in the end of Amos is promising this land. And though we we don't see this completely today, because honestly, if you look at Israel, we we see a partial completion of this with the people of Israel. Um but one day as believers, we're, we're the sons of Adam as, or Abraham as we saw in, in Romans chapter 4. We have been brought in, grafted in. And so one day we will experience that inheritance, the, the physical land in Christ Jesus, the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem in, in the millennial reign. Christ is preparing a place for us. And it'll be a far better place than what we have here. It'll be far better than any inheritance that any of us can give to our children or anyone. So, we see that God is a promise keeper. What are we going to do about it? One, I believe we must take Him at His word. 
If God has proven that He can keep promises for thousands of years, can't He be trusted? We know in Corinthians, I think it's 1 Corinthians 1.20, it says that all the promises of God are in Him, Christ Jesus, yes and amen. Are we looking to God's Word for promises or are we looking to other means? Where, where are our promises coming from? Are we listening to the promises of our political Parties, oh, we're going to change the world. I promise you, they're only going to change the world if God allows them to do it. Because they cannot control circumstances. God alone can. Are we looking to man's wisdom for our our hope? I hope not. Because they will lie. Just like Some contractors will just tell you what you want to hear and then you'll get a bill and say, wait, that's not what we agreed on. You're you're $2,000 more than what you were bid and you're kind of stuck because you shook a hand with somebody you thought you could trust. Oftentimes the problem is we encounters the lies of Satan and we believe them instead of God's Word. That when we encounter, one of the ways that we take Him at His Word is when the devil lies to us, we go back to the Word. What does it say? By His stripes I'm healed. Okay, I don't need that lie. Or if it's our finances, we can come back and say, you know what, I don't know how God's going to provide this month. I know it's typically a slow month. I don't know how this is going to work out. God will provide all your needs according to His riches and glory. Not, not, and shockingly, most people don't like the, don't realize that the context of that is about giving. That Paul is actually telling, calling us to give because God will provide our needs. We don't need to be concerned about giving and being generous with the money that He has given us in the first place. So, No matter what the lie is that we're being told, maybe it's you'll never find the person that God has for you. I felt that way. We, I didn't really meet Megan until, what was that, 28 at the time? When we actually, 29 when we really got talking, but... Everybody that I was friends with had already been married, pretty much. I felt like an outcast. Oh, you're married. You're not married, so we can't really talk with you anymore. By the way, that's terrible. If I can give any young person who is not married, when you get married, don't believe the lie that you can't hang out with people who aren't married, because that is terrible. Anyways, that's not Scripture As Paul said, you know, that's opinion. (laughs) But you you believe that lie, and what do you do? Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna try the world's way. I'm gonna I'm gonna maybe if I go to a couple bars and I'll pick somebody up that'll I know. (laughs) 
I already saw the shock in some people's faces. <laughs> no, I, but you know what I'm saying? Like, the devil wants you to believe, well, you're never going to find him by trusting me. Go, go searching. Go, go try to find this person. Maybe if you uh, get on Tinder, it'll work out. <laughs> I, I should probably be quiet about that one. <laughs> Not for me. Uh, but there's so many lies the devil wants us to believe. Another lie that men deal with, one look, one look won't hurt. Right? I mean, that's hitting hard at home, but one look won't hurt. You can, you can look at that. That's not going to cause any long-term sin. I promise you it will. Don't believe the lie. God did not make us to, to be that way. He provides a means through marriage. Maybe, maybe you need wisdom, and you're the devil's telling, you, "Oh yeah, go to the go to the philosopher down the street, or the psychiatrist, or you name it. Get go to the tax professional. Go go everywhere else. I'm not saying you shouldn't get help with things you don't understand, but when you need wisdom to make a decision, where are you turning? Are you turning to all your friends, hoping that they have the right answer?" Are you turning to God? Because James 1 is clear. If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives liberally and upbraids not. If we ask in faith. If you need wisdom, don't believe the lie the devil's telling you. Turn to God. Don't wait till you've exhausted all your resources and then say, Okay, God, I'll, I'll come ask you now. No one else seems to know what to do or... I've tried all the other things and those don't work. God should be our first resource, our first hope and our only hope. Turn to Him. Take Him at His word. Secondly, we need to submit to His kingship. We need to submit to His kingship. Christ has to be Lord of our life. He has to be. He is all-powerful he can do all things. So how does this kingship look? Sin should not be reigning in our lives anymore. I'm not saying that we don't fall into sin. What I'm saying is we're not under its reign. It's tyranny. I've preached about this the last couple of weeks. But he, that sin is no longer our master. Jesus Christ is. And He reigns in grace and truth. When we submit to His kingship, we overcome. Sin doesn't reign over us because we overcome by the Son, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's only Son. So, what are ways that we see this here and now? Our finances. What does our money say about? Who's king of our life? If somebody sat down and saw our, our bank records, would they think Amazon is the Lord of our life? <laughs> would they think uh, the Super Bowl is Lord of our life? Would they think, what would they think if they 
took a snapshot of your bank history and, and just went down and saw all that you purchased, where all your money's going, what would they think? And a part of that, our possessions. What do our possessions tell people about us? Our bodies. What are we doing? Are we submitting to sin? Are we giving in to temptation? To lust? To the lie that the world is... Oh, you can sleep with whoever you want. No big deal. It's just just something fun to do. Are our bodies submitted to the Lord's kingship? What we love is most reflected in how we treat what we have, what God has given us. What opportunities are we taking to spread the love of Christ with our finances, our possessions, our bodies, our lives? If our lives reflect His ownership, that's my heart's desire. Instead of Toyota stamped on me, it should say Jesus, right? You know, the Toyota doesn't own the car, but they made it. And then three, look to your inheritance. So we need to take him at his word. We need to submit to his kingship. And three, we need to look to our inheritance. It's so easy to look at the circumstances of this life. We, we can hear the first half of Amos's, the, the majority of Amos' prophecy and say, that's me, that's me right now. There's no hope, nothing. But we shouldn't let it destroy our hope and peace because our inheritance is in heaven with Christ. So we submit and take God at His word through Christ. We Submit to His kingship because He's our Lord. He died for us. And why did He die? So that we could spend eternity with Him. He's restoring what God, what Adam and Eve had in the garden. An intimate relationship with God. That's what we're going to have. We'll walk with Him and talk with Him. You remember that song? Maybe. It's an old one. Do we... Look to heaven in that way, or have we become so um, distracted by what's going on in the world around us and in our lives, our families, our church, whatever, our work, that we have forgotten that we have another home? If you look at Hebrews chapter 11, it's all about. They were looking to their heavenly home. Abraham, his hope was not in this life, it was in heaven. Moses, all of the heroes of the faith were looking for another home. How do we look for our inheritance? One way is the things we don't do. For example, I'm going to use one for my own life. When you are offended by someone on Twitter and Facebook, you don't take it out on them on Twitter and Facebook. (laughs) You pray about it. You pray for them. 
That's a hard one for me, especially when I feel like somebody is giving the name God's name a bad uh, rap. We don't have to worry about those things because our inheritance is in heaven. We're a child of God. People can say what they want, but we're going to heaven. Maybe you're suffering at work because you're unwilling to com- compromise your convictions about lying, cheating, stealing, or oppressing others. Don't worry, you have an inheritance. Who cares? You lose the job? Great. God will provide. If you don't lose the job, great, God is providing. But when we choose to sin or choose, yeah, when we choose to sin in our attitudes and our actions, our lives, we're saying, oh, heaven really isn't the hope that drives me. And I, I'm not saying that we don't sin. Again, I'm not trying to be condemning because I deal with this every time that I, I know I fall. I, Lord, why? I love you so much. I, I want to be with you. And, and I'm constantly reminded, you're not thinking of your inheritance. You're thinking of the here and now. What feels good or what looks good right now. And God is saying, look to your inheritance. That will keep you from sin. Because you have hope in Jesus. Well, as I end, I think of, there's one president I didn't mention. Gerald Ford. He actually never broke a single campaign promise. I know you're looking at me like, yeah, he actually beat me to the, he didn't make any. You know why? He didn't run for office. <laughs> so the only man who's served as president that I could find who had kept all his campaign promises was a man who didn't make any. And that should serve as a lesson to us that God is the, camp, the promise keeper. And He never forgets His promise He always does what He says He will do. And that really is the point that Amos is making in all these things. He promises all these things because God will fulfill them. We've seen His partial fulfillment. We will see the complete fulfillment of these promises in eternity with Christ. If you don't see God this way... You need to look to your heart and say, Lord, why don't I see you as the promise keeper? Why, why do I doubt? Why do I wonder what you will do, your faithfulness? Look to Jesus. He's, he's the full fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. He completed it all so that we could be brought in to the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father, help us to live in light of your promises, your hope, your joy. Lord, you alone give us hope and peace. And I pray that we would not forget 
the inheritance we have in Christ Jesus, the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. And Lord, that that would motivate us and encourage us when we're tempted to turn to our old master, when we're tempted to live as though sin is our master again. And Lord, help us to live with you as king, looking to your word for hope and peace and joy. We thank you, Lord, for being with us today. We thank you for giving us your word that we can hope in you. Pray, Lord, that you would help use us as a church, as individuals to reach the lost in this world, that we would be fulfilling that promise in Amos when we go out these doors and bring the gospel to the nations around us. We thank you, Lord, for this, and we trust that you will guide and direct us. In Jesus' name, amen.